0: Hey, what up, what up? Good morning. Good morning to you too, sir. Yes,
1: yes. So what are we on? Episode seven today, I believe.
0: Episode 75.
1: (laughs) All right. So uh, today on Moms and Chow, we were going to talk a little bit about the idea of gentrification. Originally, we were going to do Women in Tech, but our guest was um, unable to make the show today. We may have her on within the next month. Um, in terms of today's topic, uh, wanted to talk a little bit about gentrification one, because I feel like there is this really wide gap, um, and that gap has really been dominated by people who want to automatically characterize gentrification as racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and me and you've had, uh, had conversations, Chabelle, but not really super in-depth ones, um about how there 's a lot more nuanced gentrification other than just um race um and wanted to explore that and not only i mean obviously we could always bring in a technical expert and we may do that in the future, but you know you grew up as a young kid in the washington d c area, and I grew up in Minneapolis, and these are two places um that have had quite a bit of gentrification uh You also now live in Denver which has mm-hmm. had some and I'm living in Los Angeles, which actually is not having as much as the other ones, um, but that's for some different reasons. So I think we had some kind of uh perspective to talk about the issue in a more human way and how it affects us as just average everyday uh guys, um and, and kind of um introduces itself or or um plays a role in how we interact in our communities. Um, anything else to add before we uh, delve into the issue today?
0: Yeah, let's jump into it because, I mean, you uh, you did a good job introducing kind of our experiences with this. And I can talk a little bit about what I've seen here in Denver and what I've seen in D.C. as well. So, yeah, let's jump into it.
1: So um, one thing I I, I do want to call out before we get into it, I think it's really interesting, um, is that – There is a list um, that was done by uh, Governing.com in 2015 called Where Gentrification is Occurring. Uh, And they basically took the 50 largest metros in the US and determined what their level of gentrification was between 2000 and 2010. And cities with a rate of gentrification of 40% more were um, in this order. Portland, Oregon, at 58 percent, Washington, D.C. at 52 percent, Minneapolis said around 51 percent, Seattle, 50 percent, Atlanta, 46 percent, Virginia Beach, 46 percent, Denver, 42 percent, and Austin, about 40 percent. Uh, and these were the highest levels of gentrification. And as I said before, uh, you know, we have a lot of intimate ties to a lot of these cities, Um uh, Another thing that was interesting to me in the in the last day is I actually was having a conversation with a guy here in L.A. Uh, and he was asking why I left Minnesota. Um, I haven't really talked about it in a in a public forum. Uh, I had a lot of feelings about when I left Minnesota, but one of them was mainly a feeling of hurt. And what that feeling of hurt was was I grew up in Minneapolis. From the age of two to twenty-two, so for twenty years, and uh, grew up in the city, and felt a certain sense of ownership of the city. Um, when I went back after my military service, uh, things had changed tra- changed dramatically. And I've never, uh, I've never really been a person who saw gentrification or, or urban renewal as another kind of, um, a, a more nicer way to put it. Uh, as a bad thing, right? I, there's positives and negatives to it. In Minneapolis, <clears throat> a lot of the people who are moving into Minneapolis are are instead of being from wide areas of the country, a lot of them are from uh, the Dakotas, Iowa, Wisconsin, northern Minnesota. Um, and it, a lot of those places have a very distinctly non-urban culture. So gentrification in minneapolis or in the twin cities has taken on um that flip, uh, and again not necessarily bad or good but there uh, the difficulty is is although i was somebody who was raised there and lived there for a long time and was enmeshed in the culture um there were several places and especially even more recently i had a friend of mine who encountered it again you're made to feel unwelcome as though you're not from there mm-hmm. um, in Minneapolis. And again, I think it's because the folks coming from these smaller towns um, are bringing their biases and, and their preferences into the city. And in some ways, mandating that everybody kowtows to that. Mm-hmm. Um And so with me in Minnesota, when I went back, it was a little painful to go into restaurants and be given subpar uh, service, um, put in seats that were not in the common view. Um, You know, you'd go to a sports bar and ask if you could watch a game and nobody, nobody is watching it on that television. And they say, no, we only, we're only watching hockey here. Um, and I just, again, I felt like I had had too much of an emotional investment or too much of an emotional tie to the place um, to be ostracized or put on the outside and not even necessarily in terms of housing, which can be even, you know, a, a big issue in of itself. But just even within the, the spheres of influence or, or the everyday life to, to be feel like you're relegated to the outside, even though this is your roots. Um, and so personally, I had to leave. And it was interesting when I was telling uh, this guy at USC about it, um, he, gave, he was uh, a Caucasian male and he kind of gave me this eye roll like, oh, that doesn't happen. And it was really interesting when we started, when we were doing the research for this episode and I saw that Minneapolis was at the very top of the list and I'd actually seen that it was on some list before, but I, I didn't know what the numbers were like. You know, that's another thing that that's difficult about the situation is you say, Hey, I feel this is happening. Um, and I'm not trying to condemn people for making a buck or for trying to find cheaper rents. Um, mm-hmm. But there's this whole kind of attitude that comes with it, disdain, um, for people who don't share that culture that's from outside of the area. And when you identify that, people try to try to treat you like you're crazy, mm-hmm. um, like you're just making it up or that it doesn't really exist. Um, and I think that over the course of this podcast, what i like to talk about is, Yes, there's the economic effects, and we can, we'll you know, definitely talk about that. But I think there's these psychological effects that are under it, um, and this lack of recognition of it makes it even worse.
0: Yeah, that's the issue that I have with gentrification as well. Um, <clears throat> and there, there's a lot of backlash to it here in Denver. There's one, um, there's one coffee shop, one of those trendy history coffee shops where everything's super overpriced. The Ink Coffee Shop. The Ink. Mean. Yeah, This so you know this story. Yeah, go ahead, though. Yeah, so I saw an uproar because uh, I was friends with a guy on Facebook who's born and raised in Denver, and he's very opposed to to this gentrification. He's basically saying this is a whole different city where they're running roughshod over the people that have lived here forever and kind of co-opting the culture and turning it into this new thing. So they the coffee shop put out a little... Uh, you know how coffee shops will have those little chalkboards, the advertisements, and they'll have like a little funny slogan or a drawing or something to draw you in.
1: Absolutely. And this
0: one said uh, proudly gentrifying the neighborhood since whenever. Proudly gentrifying Denver or something to that effect.
1: They, uh, so, happily gentrifying the neighborhood since 2014. Yeah. And then, uh, that was on one side. And on the other side, it says nothing says gentrification like being able to order a Cortado. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So that and a lot of people took offense to that because it's just a tongue in cheek. Like, what are you going to do about it? It's and that's kind of always the reaction, isn't it? I met when I was uh, working out in Moab as a journalist, I met a guy at the hostel I was staying at who just came over and started talking to me. And he asked me where I was from. And I said, D.C. area. And he said he just moved from there. And then I didn't ask him anything else. And he just went on this defensive tirade about how nobody wants him or people like him there because he's gentrifying and just kind of went on this little rant. And I was like, yeah, I can see it. (laughs) It's, I mean, that is how people feel. I mean, things are different. Food's different. You can't, uh, you can't go to a restaurant and, and get that same culture that you used to have. It's so a lot of this is just like here's DC. Actually, was sued last year for over a billion dollars in damages. I haven't seen the results of this suit. I imagine it's still uh, ongoing. But according to the DCist, the strategy of DC, there they seem to want to bring in more of the creative class. I'm doing air quotes right now. And you're seeing that in a lot of these bigger cities. Denver is kind of on a similar path. New York, as we know, is the mecca of gentrification. So. They are catering to people that can afford to go and live in these expensive places. And they're not really thinking about all the people that they're pushing out of that. So then you'll have these very insulting uh, situations where somebody discovers something culturally that you've had forever. God, there's a viral video from a couple of years ago of a kid going on a rant about chopped cheese. I think he was from Brooklyn or the Bronx or something like that. And that's a New York City, like, bodega delicacy. I'm not from New York, so don't kill me if I get it wrong. But they made one of those uh, BuzzFeed-y, kind of jangly videos about d- the discovery of chopped cheese and how amazing it is. And just got a whole bunch of things wrong. And it's just very insulting to people that you're already forcing out of their, uh, their neighborhoods. Then co-opting the culture and kind of wearing it like a costume. Mm. And you see a lot of that in DC. When I went back there, it just, I couldn't recognize it. Granted, everything was way nicer and more expensive, but the food wasn't as good. And the culture is totally different.
1: But see what I like about DC, and I mean, I'm sure I'm not from there. So again, I don't have that emotional attachment, but the vibe I get there is like you said, people there at least pay homage to the roots of the original culture in the city. Where in some of these other places that were listed, that um, didn't already have, I guess, kind of uh, a diverse, uh, underlying diverse populace is that people don't just have just tried to completely bulldoze what was there before and just pretend like it was never there.
0: Yeah. And DC there, that's a good point too. And I think that you can't really bulldoze DC as much or as easily because it is the most predominantly African-American place in the country. So there will naturally be a pushback to gentrification in D.C. and the surrounding counties.
1: And then plus Prince George's, which where you used to live, um, has like the most affluent uh, African-American community in the country. Mm-hmm. So they can actually kind of hold their own <clears throat> with property values and all that kind of stuff. Yes, indeed. Uh, so the CDC, I found a list here, has a Web page that discusses the effects of gentrification. And they they highlighted positive and negative. I just want to list those real quick. Um, The positive ones were higher incentive for property owners to increase or improve housing, reduction in crime, stabilization of declining areas, increased property values, increased consumer purchasing power and local businesses, reduced vacancy rates, increased local fiscal revenues, taxes, um, encouragement, and increased viability of further development, Reduce strain on local infrastructure and services, increased social mix, and rehabilitate of property both when and, with and without state sponsorship. On the negative, there's displacement through rent and price increases, loss of affordable housing, commercial industry displacement, unsustainable property prices, displacement and housing demand pressures on surrounding poor areas, community resentment and conflict, homelessness, secondary psychological cost of displacement, which is you know, kind of what we're talking about. Increased costs and charges to local services, loss of social diversity, uh, and under occupancy and population loss um, to a gentrified area. Um, so in terms of, it, it's interesting now though, right, where I think both of us have moved away from where we originally were from, and now we're in new areas. And you find that you fit in now, neither of us are particularly wealthy. You're, you know, kind of a a journalist who's just trying to get by (laughs) today. I'm still a a full-time student, you know, and I'll be working on an internship in a a month. Um, How do you feel when you are in Denver or, and, you know, I'll go into how I feel about LA um, in terms of where you fit um, and especially coming from a community that was gentrified,
0: yeah, so I'm just kind of trying to get my head around it because it's it was culture shock just coming out here in general because just Denver in itself is completely different than anywhere on the East Coast. Denver is like its own little animal, but as I become more and more used to the culture and I start to like it more, I can start to notice that it is being heavily gentrified. So I would say... I feel the same way as I feel when I'm in any big city. I feel like I'm just a visitor and that the living in a city is just not a realistic possibility at this point. It's just Mm -hmm. like, like I've kind of passed that point in my life where I would have wanted to live in a city. And during that whole time, I wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. So that's kind of the way I feel about it. I feel like it does cater to the, to the wealthier creative class. And by the time I could afford to live in Denver, I would be over the city scene anyway. I feel like a lot of people feel that way, too. It just feels uh, like you're just a visitor.
1: Yeah, um, I definitely feel similarly in in L.A. Uh, L.A. is such a weird beast compared to uh cities on the east coast or even denver to a certain extent denver still has uh it's massive you have to drive a lot in denver but it's nothing like driving in la uh you can drive just to go to target um can take six miles you know or like you know a store where you can get groceries and stuff and that's why they say there's there's food deserts and whatnot here i think that's part of the reason why la has had a more difficult time gentrifying than a place like new york or uh, D.C. Or, or Minneapolis or Seattle, uh, which has that small density. So again, like, you know, you mentioned New York is a mecca of, of um, gentrification. A lot of the gentrification in New York happened in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I think part of the reason, I don't, I mean, obviously the data shows that recently they gentrification hasn't, I mean, it's happened in New York, but it hasn't um, been the epic center of it. But I think that in New York, if you gentrify, let's say, two or three city blocks, that can be over 200,000 people because of the density, mm-hmm. or at least 100,000, you know, it can be quite a few. Um, and so I think that it, it makes an impact. Where here, because things are so spread out, um, it takes large swaths of land to, um, to have that urban renewal, to have that influx of new people who are willing to make that, that investment, and what I've seen a lot more in L.A. is that people will want to buy the land because it appreciates. But slumlordism is um, really, really big in Southern California in a way I've never seen before. Um, because people can buy the property at, you know, 400000 500000 It's completely run down. But there's enough people between, um, you know, people who are chasing careers, especially in entertainment, um, and then... Um, people coming from Central America and Mexico uh, who will take anything. They'll take any kind of roof over their head, especially when you've got such a huge homeless population here. Um, And the landowners don't have to actually put any money into the property and they just take the rent. Uh, So yeah, here's, it's very difficult. My my neighborhood in particular is is different because I'm just a few blocks away from USC Um, And there's a lot of new construction going on in the area. Condos are going up, um, but there's still, uh, it is still a very much a, a low income urban neighborhood. Uh, We put our, our trash out on Tuesday because the trash man doesn't come, you know, take it from the house. We have to put it out on the street. And every time we do that, um, there's a line of homeless people who will go down the center of the street, basically go grocery shopping through our trash. Um, it's it's difficult uh i i honestly out here don't know exactly where i do fit uh, i definitely know that i don't fit as somebody who's a native of the of the neighborhood um but it takes so much money um to be a quote unquote gentrifier in los angeles i don't fit in that category too Another thing you have with cities like Los Angeles and New York, and possibly, you you know, you let me know um, if you still have any buddies there in D.C., but you're not only, gentrifiers aren't only just domestic people from the surrounding areas, uh, but here in L.A., gentrifiers are, a lot of them are foreign, many Mm -hmm. of them um, from Asia, Korea, China, some uh, Japanese, Um, and so the competition is, is really fierce. Um, and it just makes for a totally different uh, situation. Speaking of which, I did want to see what you thought about this idea I was thinking of. uh, It does seem that even in in these mega global cities, right? New York and Los Angeles and, and now Seattle is starting to become that way, that it even seems like some of the initial gentrifiers of areas are getting pushed out by international gentrifiers.
0: Yeah, that's happening in uh, Colorado as well. Really? hmm Not could... so much in the cities. It's more so in the posh neighborhoods in the surrounding suburbs.
1: So you're talking about like Vail and um,
0: Breckenridge? No, those are different uh, towns. Those are kind of remote. They're in the middle of, of nowhere. And those are really expensive places to live. I mean, just in the surrounding towns around Boulder and Denver.
1: Interesting. Can you go into a little more detail on that? Like how were you able to tell?
0: Um, just because um, the gym that I work at part-time right now, I just see new families and they're all from Asia, typically from India, Bangladesh, and they're all coming here to work tech jobs. So you're seeing a lot of people coming in, moving into like the Broomfield area, the the nicer parts of uh, the Denver suburbs. So you're seeing a lot of people come straight from Asia to Colorado because it's just a booming economy, but a lot of people that are from here are leaving.
1: I mean, it, you know, both of us, we're on the liberal side of the spectrum. Uh, We're pretty centrist, but we're on the liberal side of the spectrum when it comes to politics. And I I would say it is difficult to see. You can understand uh, why a lot of the rhetoric of Trump was able to catch hold with people that have less experience with, Different cultures than we Mm -hmm. do. Because if you look at it on face value, um, like for example, you said that you don't even see a time where you could afford to live in any city in the US. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's uh, pretty common. I feel like there's starting to be uh, this really stark divide, not only between the cities and the rural areas. But the coasts are becoming unattainable um, for large a large portion of the U.S. population.
0: Yeah. Yeah, straight up. And uh, a lot of the communities out here, they, they don't typically, um, let's say like a lot of the uh, Indian folks that are coming in, they typically only associate with other Indian people. So, you know, um, my family's background, my dad's half Indian. Yeah. And for a while, back when I was in the Navy, my granddad used to live at my parents' house here, and the neighbors would only invite him over for dinner, like just randomly just him so it's it's like we're not seeing people really wanting to be a part of the community as a whole and that's kind of ties into the whole theme of gentrification
1: i mean i i agree i mean it's hard for me to say that it's everybody clearly there's there's trends and then there's like you know individuals or subgroups and uh here in los angeles um i guess it's a two way street because there's there's um, Foreign communities here, or like we'll say, more recent immigrant communities here that have now been here for two or three generations, and so I think that you have to be culturally open to their culture. But I would agree with you uh, at a school that has a lot of uh, international students and uh, people who are trying to immigrate, trying to be first uh, generation immigrants. Um, it is difficult to feel that bond. And I imagine it must be difficult for them, right? Mm-hmm. I that part of the reason why they go back to their own culture is because it's, as we know from being um, at DLI, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, and learning another language, it is really difficult to always be immersed in that culture. Yeah. Uh, it, it's tiring. Uh, so I get why people would want some relief, but I also hear you where I've had a lot of first generation um, or like these, you know, foreign exchange students who have wanted to tell me how bad America was for various reasons like the gun issue and they like automatically assume that I was like some gun-toting dude <laughs> um, or uh, because of crime. Um, and sometimes when they are saying crime is not because there's actually any crime but it's it's been in the context of they're just seeing black and brown people mm-hmm. um and yeah it doesn't necessarily endear you to to them be, when they you're just getting to know them and they're already criticizing your your culture yeah. uh it's, it's a tough situation man because at the same time though I mean, obviously, they want to be a part of it. They're spending their money here. Um, It's just, it it is very tricky. And it's also very tricky when you have such different cultures that you do with um, East East and Southern Asian cultures and uh, Western. It's not even just United States culture, but it's Western United States culture, which, you know, this part of the country was populated by cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very different from your kind of more um, formal um, uh, culture of, especially New York and the, in the uh, Northeast, like Boston and stuff like that. You know, it's pretty different. So, um, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. Um, a lot of people here are very excited about the Crazy Rich Asians movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought it's, it's cool. I mean, I, I love to see representation. Uh, I, you know, I think it's definitely, I'm surprised that nobody saw the business opportunity in something like that sooner, like maybe at least 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, um, but at the same time, like when all I've seen for the last five to 10 years is Chinese production companies, especially for some of our blockbusters, recently saw The Meg with Jason Statham and uh, half of them or at least a quarter of the major characters were were Asian. Um, And there was a significant portion or at least a good amount of dialogue that was in Chinese. Um, I feel like it was an eventuality. I I don't necessarily see it as something that like that this was a, a particularly different difficult time to push something like this through but ultimately I'm not in the industry and I don't I don't know uh, I'm just saying that I think that the fact of the matter is is rich rich Asian people as, as long as we have a, a global economy um, what at least half of the population the world population if not more is Asian um, and a lot of that is from China and India and it's behooves all of us to try and learn as much of that culture as possible. And hopefully um, people coming from those countries will be able to uh, meet Americans halfway as well and, mm-hmm. and be open to, um, like I said, we t- we're talking about gentrification, um, You know, pay some homage to the people who were, were, who were here before them. You know? Yeah,
0: it's, it goes back to that rule. It's like, if we're going to have a melting pot, you got to melt a little bit. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think America is supposed to be a nice blend of all these different cultures. It's like a it's like a cultural marketplace, if you will. And you do you do see that in uh, certain cities like Raleigh, you definitely see um, a lot of representation. Raleigh doesn't get a whole lot of credit for this, but in Raleigh, you will see all different types of markets, all different types of restaurants and all different types of people but everybody's going to go to the Panthers game, Hmm. you know? And I think, uh, I think it's a pretty good model for, for how a city can be this melting pot where everybody kind of comes together.
1: So I've, I've actually been curious about this. and I'm glad you, you brought that up. Uh, North Carolina, I talked about North Carolina being a potential final destination, like in terms of settling down with people and it always uh, promotes Such uh, strong views, like other people are like, yeah, yeah, I love North Carolina, it's great. Or it's like people are really nervous about um, the culture, I guess, in North Carolina, what they perceive to be the culture in North Carolina. And you do see kind of a bipolar um, politics in North Carolina, right, where the Research Triangle appears so much different than what you're seeing, um, at the state level. So can you explain how that kind of plays out a little bit more? And, and so like one, what what people have expressed to you in terms of their anxieties versus what's the reality on the ground?
0: So the reality is, I mean, I only lived in the triangle, so I haven't really spent too much time in like the mountains or anything like that, but there are these little liberal pockets and, uh, North Carolina. So it still very much is the South. North Carolina is where the South like really starts, where you start to feel like, okay, I'm definitely in the country here. So it is deep uh, Trump country in some parts. But when you get into the cities, it's just super diverse. And everybody talks to everybody. That was my experience. I went to uh, Wake Tech for a little bit when I was there. And it seemed like there was two massive groups of people that hung out. There was the good old boys, the good old college boys, frat guys with the, uh, the polos tucked into their shorts. The, the type of guys you see in the South that go to college. And then you have like everybody else. And that's kind of how it is in most colleges. But in North Carolina, it was kind of split along those lines. And it was all the international students would hang out together. And you had people from literally every background you can imagine. And we would all just go out, go to Persian restaurants, go to an Indian place, go to a hookah bar, go here. And uh, everybody uh, seems to be interested in learning about each other's cultures. So North Carolina does kind of have that vibe. When you're there and when you're in Chapel Hill, Duke, anywhere around the triangle, it's a heavily multicultural vibe. And there's every type of business is represented. It's not like a lot of... uh, cities where it's just going to be high-end, posh type of stuff that's catered to this quote-unquote creative class. It's going to be everything you can think of.
1: So, but to relate that back to the idea of gentrification, I feel like part of the reason why the research triangle has been able to do that is because there was so much of it that had no population there, right? Mm -hmm. So when the development came in, it wasn't like there was anything there to begin with. So in some ways they had a a tabula rasa of blank slate um, to just build.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, I mean, I'm asking you if that's true. Well, there is truth to that because people didn't know that Raleigh was actually uh, such a growing city with all this opportunity. I think, and then people find out you can get a really nice house there with a really big yard for a very reasonable price. And people are starting to find that out. They're like, "Well, I can get this city vibe when I want it. I'm not that far from Charlotte, I'm not far from the beach. I'm not far from the mountains. Like, you can do a whole lot here, and I can live in the country. I can live in the country and drive into the city." So a lot of people are kind of flooding into North Carolina, low key. It's it's like a sleeper, great place to be.
1: Um. So. I think, you know, there's probably a couple of listeners we have we, uh, who may fall more into the gentrification side, right? Like um, maybe not even necessarily with their own money, but they grew up uh, somewhat affluent and they want to be a part of these American cities and they don't want to be somebody who's causing any kind of social harm uh, with their presence. I mean, what I think we should try and brainstorm some rules. Um, for or some guidelines for ways that they could be a part of it um, without coming off as uh, hurtful, right or damaging. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: How what... do you even begin to do that though? Because I mean, it's this is just kind of the result of capitalism. So it's like, how do you socially engineer people to be more? Understanding. Did you ever watch that show Girls on HBO? No, I did not. So I watched it and it started off really strong for me. I thought it was really funny. And I also thought that it was making fun of itself. I didn't know it was taking itself seriously. So it is basically an ode to gentrification. It's, gentr- it's a story about gentrification accidentally from the story of the trustafarians that are gentrifying New York City. Trustafarians. Yeah, the people that can afford to live in New York City while they're just figuring it out. <laughs> and it's just, at and they accidentally have these little cultural moments in there. Like uh, there's one part where Lena Dunham's character just rides the train for a really long time and she ends up in a Black neighborhood and it's depicted as like scary and unwelcoming. And it's just like, it just comes across like you're supposed to be sympathizing with the character, but I'm just watching it and I'm just hating all these characters. And I, re- I thought that was the point of the show, but it, it turns out it's not. You're supposed to be sympathizing with them. So I think they really have no idea and they have no desire to learn. I mean, how, have you ever had conversations with people where you're like, hey, maybe if you did this a little bit different and they just are not open to hearing it?
1: I mean, definitely true. Definitely true. But I can say that, for example, uh, there are gentrifiers in Minneapolis who want to kind of do it in what they would term an ethical way. So, for example, there's just like any other ultra-liberal metro area, uh, there's a lot of uh, co-ops. And basically, these are grocery stores uh, slash apothecaries that are publicly owned. So you buy an ownership and they're they're owned by the community. And in Minnesota, they've been a big thing for several years, for at least 25 to 30 years, uh, if not longer. And they've grown exponentially over the last 10 to 15 years. As, you know, this trend of gentrification has happened, people really like the idea of these co-ops. And one of the things the co-ops did as they went into new neighborhoods, that were were gentrifying is they put a mandate that they would hire at least I want to say 20% of their staff it might have been more um, from the neighborhood itself um, which I thought was pretty cool Um, and I've seen initiatives like that that are self-imposed initiatives in order to become a staple of the community, right? Because mm-hmm. also, too, if you do that, the community is going to feel better about your business, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that there are people who are open to it, but they just don't even know where to begin.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that they are in the minority. But I think as more people become aware of it, they're probably going to try to find a way to coexist with the people that already inhabit that city
1: i mean one thing i could say is you know people think okay i don't like how this neighborhood is in terms of uh and i gotta be careful here because it's it's tricky it's not easy and none of this is if you think life is easy um it's not it's not. It's going to be <laughs> because because it, it's not. It, it, it takes nuance and it, and it takes um, uh, discernment. But people come into the neighborhoods and like, I don't like the trash on the ground. I don't like seeing this, that, this, this, that, or the other. And they clean up. It's a physical thing. But when it mm-hmm. comes to people, I think a lot of times folks get intimidated of having to have that human human interaction. And so, for example, if you see a lot of young people hanging out on the streets looking like they're not really doing anything you know, employ them, you know, like if you create a marketing team for yours, your startup venture, you know, um, you know, you could also, um, do big brothers and big sisters and mm-hmm. take them out and show them that there's more than to just the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and not necessarily in like a, I know better than you way, but just be, you know, just, just be a friend. um, Another thing I think that would be nice is if businesses are willing to include the people in their neighborhood more. And I actually would say that here in Los Angeles, I've seen that a lot more. When I went to the VA hospital a couple weeks ago, um, they actually do allow some homeless vets to just stay there overnight. Not a lot. You know, it's kind of like a low-key, like, oh, you have this issue uh, and, you know, you're having this health issue and they're not really, but they just want to have a roof over their head for one night. And so they let them stay in the ER. And exactly. I think that Minnesota, one, because of its own culture, um, but two, because it doesn't have a as much of a history of plurality as a place like this, they really have a hard time um, with with seeing somebody so dramatically different from them in their circumstance and, and still treating folks with, um, with compassion in a, I don't know how, how you'd put it, in a way that doesn't seem like you're stiff-arming them.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the big one. That's the big one right there because it does just feel like a power play. People come into the community and they're like, oh, I like it here. I like this rustic feel. I want this. I have the money. Why shouldn't I have it? So back to Denver, I'm looking at this article here and I've seen this myself too. There are signs all over uh, the housing right outside the city that says my community is not for sale. And it says in Spanish too a lot of the times. And uh, people are just trying to kind of strong arm these people out of their houses. And they're getting these offers all the time. They're getting notices and flyers that say from real estate agents. And they're like, dude, I'm not trying to move. Stop this. And people are like, well, I like your house. I like this proximity to the city, this walkable area. And I want it. So give it to me.
1: So, yeah, that's, that's another good one. Um, Don't, throw money at people's faces Mm -hmm. when they didn't ask for
0: it (laughs) yeah and dude i'm telling you if you go to certain parts like five points downtown i know you're familiar with denver too you got a lot of family out here you'll see people out at like bars and restaurants that are kind of off the beaten path that are run by denver natives and they are very either aggressive or passive aggressive about people coming here it's like we were having a talk a while back where i said Colorado is just liberal Texas in the sense that people are super proud to be from here. You see Colorado flags everywhere and you see people with shirts that say just I'm from here. And they just have this look on their face like, are you? Cause this is our shit. (laughs) Um,
1: So a story I kind of wanted to share about how you can move into a neighborhood. Now granted this lady, she actually came from DC and um, in some ways was displaced by gentrification in D.C., but she moved to Minneapolis, and I met her my second year of my MBA. Um, She owns a cafe on Lake Street in Minneapolis called Abby's Cafe. Her name is Cezia Abigail, 25-year-old Salvadorian-American lady. Um, I think she's probably 27 now, um, considering when this article came out. And so Abby's Cafe is a, a Salvadoran restaurant, They serve pupusas and stuff. There's not a huge Salvadoran population in Minnesota. So actually, uh, you know, she's, you know, providing, uh, some, some different foods, some different kind of flavor there. And and the food is good. Um, however, Lake street itself is a, is a city that or a street that's been gentrifying, particularly, uh, East Lake street is starting to have, um, condos and whatnot there, which it hasn't had in years. Um, and so in the meantime there are homeless people who walk around lake street regularly not as many as here in la or even in denver but there's a few and um when i would go when i'd gone into her store they would come in and they knew she was congenial but what a lot of them would do is they would offer to work for her for a meal and uh this one guy in particular um did so, and it made the national news. You can find the article on CBS News. Minnesota Cafe owner shows homeless man job not the door, and she let him start washing dishes for a meal once a day, and after she had done this for a couple of days, um, she offered him a job as a dishwasher, and he hadn't had a job in a long time, and he, he was in this level of homelessness where he didn't know, he didn't think he'd ever have a job, right? So he was kind of outside of society. And she started his rehabilitation back into society. And in her case, you know, in some ways she was a gentrifier. She moved into a neighborhood uh, with some capital that was less wealthy than the neighborhood she came from, um, started this restaurant, um, but, but she instead of automatically trying to push people out in order to bring in um, other gentrifiers, she saw positive um, involvement in the community, making a change in the community as a thing that would bring more people in. And so far her business has been successful. I know last time I talked to her, she was talking about opening a second location. Hmm. So I think that there is a winning way forward where you you, you um, allow people in the community to to work there or be a part of the change. And actually that can even uh, further your business um, when you're coming into a neighborhood that you're gentrifying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And that kind of ties into the theme of community policing, where it's like, instead of just patrolling a neighborhood, get out of your patrol car and go talk to people. Like if you see a family out there working on their tulips or something, go talk to that old lady. If you see some kids throwing a football, have a couple throws with them, get to know people. And it it helps bring the community together and it instills trust. So if you approach your business the same way, I think this is what you're saying. Yes. That you could invoke a lot of trust in the community and you could create a positive change where it's not just uh, we're pushing you out. So that's just the end of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we'll have a little shorter episode today because I got to get running pretty soon. Um, Did you want to go ahead and uh, run through your um, leader of the free world and Evil
0: Genius of the Week? Okay, so mine will be really quick. So my leader of the free world is going to go to Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. Did you watch his interview with Giuliani?
1: I did not. I heard bits and pieces of, about it. And I love Chuck Todd. So. Yeah,
0: it was absurd. It was, of course, absurd. It's Giuliani and it's the Trump administration. But he got uh, Giuliani, by his own admission, admitted to the, uh, the thing we already knew, that the meeting at Trump Tower was to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. he said that of his own free will to Chuck Todd. He said, well, the original meeting was to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. And he goes, that is the definition of collusion. You guys were trying to collude. And he was like, well, uh, no, we didn't collude. We didn't know she was Russian. Also um, if we had colluded, there's, it would have leaked by now because we leak everything else. And I'm just like, dude, (laughs) stop. Do you hear what you're saying?
1: <laughs> like, well, I heard he said something along the lines of the truth is not the truth.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, he did also say the truth is not the truth. What so were uh I I don't remember exactly that part, but you should watch the whole video or the whole interview. It's about 12 minutes long and it's absolutely absurd.
1: And so you're giving Chuck Todd the nod this this week.
0: Yeah, uh, for for <laughs> for keeping uh Giuliani honest and just letting
1: well,
0: as honest as, as he can be. As honest as he can be. Accidentally <laughs> honest. Sporadically, manically honest. And then uh, my... Um, let's see. And then Madonna is getting the nod for Evil Genius. And she's not an evil genius. She just is trash. <laughs> so she was... I didn't watch the VMAs because, of course, I didn't watch the VMAs. But I would get on Twitter intermittently and people were just complaining about how awful this was and how awful that was. And I heard her uh, tribute to Aretha Franklin uh, this morning, and it was basically a really bloated, self-indulgent tribute to herself sandwiched with Aretha Franklin's name. So she said, you know, Aretha Franklin is really awesome. Talks about herself for like five, six minutes and then said, and that's why Aretha Franklin's awesome and people were not happy with it.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting, uh, the memorials to Aretha Franklin. um, In some ways, I feel like, and I mean, obviously, it's been mentioned a lot in the press and, and just in general that in our modern era, we are becoming very... I think you know human beings have always been selfish, but I think we've become so unabashedly selfish. It's become more part of the culture, and it's been interesting how it's manifested itself in people's reflections on um, Aretha Franklin. Um, you know, at the whole Fox News and showing the Patty Labelle, thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, like you said, the thing with Madonna. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm with you. I can't remember the last time I watched the VMAs. I don't usually watch a whole lot of award shows outside of, you know, trying to watch the Academy Awards. um, Just because I've always been a big film buff. Uh, But no, I hear you on that. So I'm going to go with my um, Evil Genius of the Week first. And this might be a little bit longer one. uh, Go for it. I tagged you yesterday about it, so you know where I'm going. Uh, Ah. So when. Anthony Bourdain, when he uh took his life, unfortunately, um, me and you had a long conversation. I actually was sitting at the Rose Garden across from USC. I remember this conversation and you said, I feel like there's something else going on with the Asia Argento thing that, that we don't know. I feel like there's something there. And at the time I just I didn't have enough information to say yeah and or to really chime in at all. And this week, uh, it comes out that Asia Argento, who was one of the first people to claim uh, Harvey Weinstein did sexual assault, and it's corroborated by enough people that's undisputable. Mm-hmm. But she settled her own sex assault complaint for three hundred and eighty thousand dollars with a seventeen uh, with a a kid who was seventeen at the time, while wow, mm-hmm. I believe she was thirty seven, and that Anthony Bourdain was aware of it and was helping her deal with the situation for the last year or two of his life. And that I think, uh, unveils a lot more to the story. And I think that's the kind of feeling that you were getting.
0: Um, I don't know if you have anything else. Yeah. There's a whole lot of information. I would suggest that people do some digging into that. Um, where do you think she goes from here? (laughs) That'll be interesting because, I mean, you you see this a lot. You see this happen over and over again in various movements. You find out somebody at the forefront of a movement or the most vocal person is often guilty of something themselves. And I think that's what we're seeing with Asia Argento. And we're seeing Rose McGowan, who people are starting to look at and go, okay, are you really a part of this movement because you agree with it? You want what's best for survivors of a sexual assault or are you just using this to promote yourselves and that's such a difficult position to be in where you can see somebody doing something uh, under the guise of altruism and you feel like I'm pretty sure they have ulterior motives but you don't want to be the one that says it so I have to salute the journalists like uh, Leah McSweeney who are the ones that were like you know what I'm just going to jump on this grenade and call them out And it started a chain reaction of events that led us here. And you're seeing Rose McGowan now backpedaling and saying, oh, I haven't really known Asia for that long. And it's like, I I was pretty sure she was your best friend. And, (laughs) And saying like, we don't have all the facts yet. I bet there's more to this story. We have to be gentle with her. And it's like, okay, you are doing a complete 180. So maybe not let people hijack a good movement for their own ulterior motives. (laughs) It's going to discredit the movement at the end of the day and it shouldn't because they're separate things.
1: The interesting part is so the the guy took the money Um, and so apparently he cannot press charges against her. However he was a minor at the time because the age of consent in California is 18. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because does that mean that you can can you still get around that part of the law, right? Like, that's essentially statutory rape. Yeah. And So can, even though he can't press charges, is the state going to it's, it definitely was a bombshell.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Does Italy have extradition? (laughs) I'm not sure how that works.
1: That's right. She, you know, she could, yeah.
0: Cause it, they, what happened with Amanda Knox that would they, I don't think they extradited her. They kept her locked up in Italy.
1: And then the other thing I think of is like, I find it difficult to, to like I find it hard not to believe that this didn't play a role in Bourdain's kind of, descent into depression and that ultimately Mm -hmm. I
0: feel like that. And the fact that she was uh, cheating on him and just a lot of people around him were noticing a spiral and they were noticing he was putting up with stuff for her that he would not have put up with in the past and that he was kind of on a downward spiral and he just pushed those people away. And then I think the, uh, if you read the Leah McSweeney article, she, she details that the pictures of her holding hands and kissing a guy uh, that happened right before Bourdain killed himself. And it's not uh, her fault that he did that. He made his own choice. So she shouldn't be blamed for that. But I I feel like all those things are related.
1: Right. Yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, to take your own life is, is your own decision. And she shouldn't be blamed for that. I do think, though, it shows you that even a man is influential. He wasn't rich apparently, um, uh, or at least not rich by, um, California, by coastal standards. Um, but a man as influential as him, uh, can still, can still get into these relationships, basically these toxic
0: relationships that, mm-hmm. um, are extremely damaging. I think this is just going to open the, uh, It's going to open up the conversation or it could end up shutting it down. But I think we're going to have a more open conversation about uh, toxic and predatory femininity because it does exist. But we had to obviously the Me Too movement was designed to purge uh, the toxic elements of masculinity from our culture. So it's like, all right, we're getting I think we're getting to that point where we're going to start focusing on the other side of the coin maybe a little bit
1: yeah I, i don't know if i if I'm all the way there with you yet on that one um it'd be interesting you 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 usually are um a little early on these things so it could be the fact i think though what it it more opens up is the dialogue to like i said toxic relationships and mm-hmm. I've seen this more and more over the last few years and I think it's always been this way but it's one of those things, you know, the whole Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. And now that we're seeing gender parity or more gender parity, and I guess it's not gender parity because parity means absolutely equal. But you're seeing more gender equality in politics um, and in the workplace. Um, you can no longer just blame the guy when things go bad anymore, right? It's more about the relationship.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say we're not quite there yet. So that's where I disagree with you, because I think the uh, the culture today says, yes, you can blame the guy for everything. And the pushback for that is being silenced. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But I feel like the direction we're going is now where it won't or hopefully we're going. And I think that the door is open for us to go there is not so much just about you're this gender or you're that gender and these are the problems, but identifying toxic relationships in general. Mm-hmm. Just like we've talked about how we're starting to talk more about mental health for men, particularly like with all these NBA players that are coming out and uh, the uh, swimmer, what's his name? Uh, not Ryan Locke, the one who's actually dope. Uh, Michael, Michael Phelps. Phelps. Uh, And I think we're going to start seeing that more too, where it's not just like, oh, you don't have a handle on your woman. You know, like that, that was how people would say in the fifties, like, oh, you just don't have a handle on your woman. That's why your relationship is bad. And we'll start to look at more. Hey, no, both men and women can be narcissists Mm -hmm. or can be, uh, have borderline person, uh, uncompensated or or not um, untreated borderline personality disorder. Um, and that it can hurt both men and women. You know, not only women are the ones who are hurt by these things and, and we all need to look out for each other. You know?
0: yeah. yeah, absolutely. Our
1: friends and family.
0: That's and- what I wanna get back to. I wanna get back to having everybody in the conversation because we can't be isolating each other. We can't be trying to point fingers. We need to get to the bottom of our issues as a society so we can move forward as a society
1: yeah and it, yeah instead of using kind of the twitter one way communiques condemning entire groups <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah I, absolutely it should be a dialogue yeah um so then my leader of the free world is actually a bunch of organizations um but uh, the most, basically there's a lot of breakthroughs in cancer coming around this last year which is amazing it's great wish it happened earlier um My wife lost her mother to uh, advanced breast cancer, um, and it's been difficult for her. But it's still very heartwarming to see that uh, scientists around the world are trying very hard. In particular, there's a study done um, led by University of Melbourne, but with cancer scientists around the world, um, that they found a way to put cancer cells to sleep. And they think that by doing, using this treatment method, that actually the body's own immune system can then flush out the cancer cells. Um, and so it's adding another a whole new suite of, um, of uh, medicines or pharmaceuticals uh, treatment options that weren't there before, and that may have less side effects uh, than chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really dope. And, yes, uh, indeed. I know they're getting paid for it, but still, it's, I'm sure it's not easy work, and the road to get there is very difficult on everything, um, all the schooling and whatnot, and the discipline. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's really dope.
0: So that that's episode seven. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> we got through it. The weather sucks out here, man. You said what sucks? The weather. Really? Yeah, it's just... It's cold. It's Colorado giving you that preview to the remix of Winter. They're like, yeah, it's just going to get freezing cold for a couple of days, and then it'll be summer again.
1: Yeah, we're, we're really fortunate where it's been crazy hot, uh, way hotter than usual, and so uh, now it's actually coming back down to like real California weather, so people are loving it. It's yeah. um, our next episode, so I guess we're just going to keep people on their toes, but it's either gonna be the women in tech episode, or could potentially be an episode about the refugee crisis from the American Muslim perspective. That'd be dope. But they're both coming. We just don't know when yet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'll just leave it there for right now. So we'll keep you on your toes. You're either gonna get one or the other. Either way, great show coming up. Thanks, Chabe, for uh, for doing this episode with me, and talk to you soon later